I'm Peter Crouch from That Peter Crouch Podcast, and I'm here thanks to GoDaddy, who are empowering everyday entrepreneurs like Chris here. That's right, Crouchy. Business podcasts are all the rage, and we're going to muscle in on that space with the help of GoDaddy, who can give you all the help and tools you need to grow your business online. Visit GoDaddy.com to bring your business idea to life. And listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. Living here has been like being on a mental merry-go-round. How do I start a new life at 89? If someone had told me that I would experience psychosis, I would never have believed them. Many farmers like me have fallen back in love with our soil. Welcome to Prospect Lives, our brand new podcast. I'm Alan Rusbridger and I took the helm as editor of Prospect magazine in September. When I arrived at Prospect, I wanted a new magazine to be about people as well as ideas. But when I thought about adding a life section to the back pages, it didn't seem quite the right word. I soon realized we didn't need a life section, we needed a live section, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a new family of regular Prospect writers filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. Our seven writers include the actor Sheila Hancock, reflecting on a long life, the former England cricket captain and psychoanalyst Michael Brearley on sporting life, and Rebecca Lawrence, a psychiatrist who is herself bipolar, writing about mindful life. Each month, we'll also hear from Tom Martin, a farmer, Alice Goodman, a vicar, Serena Smith, a Gen Zer, and Jason Thomas Cornillier, an asylum seeker living off £5.66 a day. In this podcast, our seven writers will read their mini-essays aloud, from Jason in his accommodation in Doncaster, to Tom on his farm in East Anglia, from Alice in her village parish in Cambridgeshire, to Serena in her bedroom in Leeds. I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoy commissioning them. Let's start with actor Dame Sheila Hancock, who at the age of 88 wonders how to begin a new life at 89. For 30 years, I have been a European, living half my life in England and half in France. When I recently went back to my house in Provence after a nearly two-year viral imprisonment in London, I realised my entire life has changed Instead of settling in to enjoy the sear and yellow, I have to face a radical rethink of my future. While in France, I discovered that during my absence, I have, as my mother would have said, gone downhill. My erstwhile fluent French has become erratic through lack of use. There is no walk-in shower and my body does not like climbing into the bath or descending the open-plan stairs. I feel guilty about flying and anyway, the journey has become a nightmare of form-filling, testing and two-hour queues at Heathrow when the E-gates, whatever they are, break down. 
there is a rough, steep track leading to my house, which suddenly frightened me to death. With my usual never-surrender wartime spirit, I forced myself to go up and down it several times, banging into a tree trunk, my ancient heart thumping. I did it, but something that two years ago I bumped down happily is now a disturbing challenge. Fear of that bloody virus to which I have been regularly warned I am extremely vulnerable. Despair that my profession has stopped functioning and my grief at the suffering I have seen have broken my body and spirit. I feel very old. Instead of that knowledge creeping up on me gradually, it has come as a sudden gut-wrenching shock. All through my life, I have adapted to change in circumstance from child to adult, from school to work, from adventures to the responsibility of parenthood, from love to bereavement. But this recent upheaval has taken me by surprise. It is shockingly possible that my existence in France, full of sunshine, friends and a French way of life that I relish, will have to go. I am not alone in my bewilderment. I can see around me other people coming blinking out of the darkness of lockdown, unsure and nervous of the way ahead. Then there is the wider picture. I did feel hopeful that, as after the Second World War, when the welfare state came into existence, this catastrophe would lead to radical change in society. I was sourly cynical about the clapping for the NHS. But we all became aware of our utter dependence on bus drivers, social workers, shop assistants, nurses, dustmen and the like. Sadly, we have now become resentful that we might have to cough up some money to pay those people what they deserve while electing a government that will not raise the necessary taxes to do so. With the right inspirational leadership, now is a chance for our broken world to repair itself. We have problems we need to unite to solve. Covid, the environment, mass displacement from dying countries. I was heartbroken that Brexit happened, not for any economic reason, but because a united Europe would mitigate against any wars such as that which blighted my childhood. Alas, already the aggro is building between us and Europe, egged on by mindless little Englanders. What can I do about it? All my life I have been a campaigner, marching, protesting, shouting. Now I just sign things and leave the rest to my grandchildren. When you are near to 90, you're lucky if you have half a dozen years left. My daughter said about my dilemma of selling my French home, give it another year, Mum, but I can't waste one of my precious years dithering. I was offered a lovely part in a musical, one that I would have bitten their hands off to do a couple of years ago, but now I can't waste potentially a whole year of the few that I have left doing eight shows a week and worrying about my voice. But I can't do nothing. My brain will stagnate. It already gropes to be lucid. So the big question is, how do I face the fact that all my plans for my old age 
are no longer possible. How do I start a new life in 2022 at 89? Out of the blue, I have been asked to write a column for my favourite magazine. Never done that before. A change. Fresh fields. Can I do it? Should I? Shouldn't I just shut up and behave as befits my venerable old age? My mother again. Little girls should be seen and not heard. Well, I'm a big girl now, aren't I? So to hell with that. Listen. Sheila's call for greater community spirit is echoed by our next writer, Jason Thomas Fornillier, as he reflects on seeking asylum in a divided Britain. I awake to a new day thankful for life, with no right to work. I ponder how I can be of use today, as well as how much money I have in my pocket. Living on £5.66 isn't easy, and it won't be getting easier with inflation affecting food, gas and electricity prices. I have been an asylum seeker in the UK for seven years. What makes the most difference to my happiness is how integrated I feel within the community that I'm living in. I found certain local authorities in England welcoming, while in other areas the bewildered stares and hushed murmurs from members of the public have made me feel very different. On arriving in the UK in 2014, I lived in southeast London for two years. London was an absolute joy for me socially, as I am from originally a multicultural country in the Southern Caribbean. The racial diversity suited me, the travel fares were reasonable, and there was a plethora of diverse places to eat, but most of all, I never felt unwelcome or judged. In 2016, I was sent to Leeds, which was a diverse city in its own right, but was not as open to all as the sign on the city's outskirts suggested. I was then moved to Doncaster in South Yorkshire, where I currently live. As an asylum seeker, I am provided with accommodation but have no say over where it is. Living here has been like being on a mental merry-go-round. Compared to nearby Sheffield, which is such an inclusive city for refugees, Doncaster has an old-school way of socialising. I visited a pub once in the town centre, once and once only. When I walked in, the locals gave me looks that turned into stares. I started to think to myself, do I smell? Do I have something on my face? When finally a man did come over to introduce himself to me, we exchanged pleasantries. He asked me where I'm from and what my name is. Usually when I tell people I'm seeking asylum and explain why, they respond with empathy. But he claimed to be joking when he said, Oh, you're here to take our jobs and live off taxpayers' money. Feeling uncomfortable, I tried to laugh along, but I didn't find it funny. I'm the kind of person who gets along with anyone but 
Over the years, comments like this have changed how I socialize. I no longer trust some folks, and this has left me isolated. I'm naturally outgoing, but getting to places where I can make friends is a challenge. I receive £39.63 per week in asylum support, and depending in what local authority I'm living in, travel fares take up a good chunk of that, especially when I'm doing voluntary work multiple times a week. Budgeting is a challenge. For food, I have to be extremely frugal, shopping between four supermarket chains like Lidl and Aldi in a day to get my essentials at the lowest prices. Sometimes I have to wait for next week or the next. Thank goodness for Poundland. My toiletries for a month cost £6. My budget means that most of the time I keep within my environs, which is so depressing. It gives me too much time to sit and contemplate. How can I push myself forward? How do I prove my worth to the Home Office and the people of this country? Before I came to the UK, I had been working since I was 16 years old, and I never felt useless. But negative thoughts now crowd my mind. So many feelings have come at me in a wave. The inferiority, panic, loneliness, unpredictable anger and anxiety, all with a cloud of steady depression that just sits on me daily. But I'm not giving up on making a home for myself. I've learned that building a social element into my life is a character-forming experience, which slowly bridges the gap between myself and the folks who are antisocial towards me. Going on day trips or treating myself to local theatre shows or musical events after saving up helps me. So much with my depression and anxiety, along with the help I get from the NHS mental health care, I've assessed my interactions with folks here in the UK and realise that if the structure of the asylum system doesn't permit dialogue, then I must change the structure. I am working with various organisations as an expert by experience to provide support for other LGBTQIA asylum seekers. The ruthless aggression from the Home Secretary Priti Patel in implementing the Nationality and Borders Bill is a full-on assault on people like me. Creating a two-tier asylum system that criminalises people based on their mode of travel. The bill proposes to send people back to any safe country they have travelled through to keep them out of the UK and it will also allow the Home Office to strip people of their citizenship without warning. I'll end in saying this. If this bill passes, it will show that the British government has no sympathy for human pain. As Jason cherishes trips to the theatre, 
our next writer, Anglican priest Alice Goodman, is casting for a very special part in the nativity service at her parish church. This is the time of year when it's traditional for people to greet clergy with a cheerful, this is your busy time of year. And I nod and smile and get my own back by saying the same thing to the young men at the butchers. Being busy for me involves a lot of administration. May Mr. P have a robin redbreast on his tombstone? Is it essential to disseminate the deanery development planning materials more widely across the parishes? To facilitate active engagement? Has that wedding document made it safely to Shire Hall? Yes, probably not. Yes, in that order. Here come two irritable emails about the parish magazine. The landline rings. It's a funeral director. Since there's so much admin, all the things that take me out of the rectory and onto the high street or into the pub, the village hall or the church are a joy. Our Advent and Christmas services schedule at Fullborn is almost back to what it was before the pandemic, though congregations are masked and we're continuing with the live streaming. We check the case numbers religiously since the public health protocols have become matters of guidance. On our heads be it if we get it wrong. We're still not sharing the common cup. Maybe at Easter it'll be safe. Our community Christmas lunch won't be happening either, though we'll have hampers to deliver. The village charities will be meeting soon to disperse their grants, and I'll get to walk around with the envelopes. Crucially, our Jesus was born last Thursday. So while it is my busy time of year, at least, unlike the Magi, the Shepherds and Herod, I'm not looking for an infant Messiah. When I was newly ordained, I followed the custom of most churches and found a doll to represent baby Jesus in the crib service. It was the same one that we kept in the vestry and used for teaching about baptism. At Christmas, it would be swaddled in a shawl and presented to Mary. It did the trick. It was baby-shaped, and like little Lord Jesus in the carol, it didn't cry. I like to think that we all did a good job of imagining it was a real baby. But a number of years ago, almost by accident, we were offered the opportunity to cast a live baby, and the difference that made was greater than I could have imagined. We're not going back. That year, there was no need for imagining. Mary held the infant with awe and looked at her with amazement. The shepherds crowded round. So did the angels and the magi. The baby yawned, murmured, and stuck her fist out of the shawl. Everyone adored her, and she adored the attention. Every nativity play or crib service I've been a part of since has had a real live baby to play Jesus. Sometimes we have a very small baby, but other years the child is like the bouncing lad in Tiepolo's Adoration of the Shepherds. Always, though, there is delight as the baby is brought forward and settled on Mary's lap. It's a real live baby. Look at the little hands. He's awake. He's looking at me. Be gentle. Sometimes we have a boy, sometimes a girl. Most recently, in 2019, Jesus was played by the tiny son of a Hindu family whose grandmothers came up from North London to adore him from the front pew. 
This year, Jesus will be very young indeed. He may well sleep through the whole service. But if not, that's all right too. It's okay if the baby cries. To paraphrase Justin Martyr, the great Christian apologist of the second century, the word of God became a crying baby. That's the incarnation for you. Christians believe that God became fully human and dwelt among us, sharing our life, tears, smiles, hunger, homelessness, the lot. Everything except sin, and that he shares through suffering. While Alice is busy with Christmas preparations, just down the road, Tom Martin is sniffing the soil on his Cambridgeshire farm. At the door to 2021, when the year ahead held no prospect beyond two AstraZeneca jabs, I made a series of New Year's resolutions here on the farm, from trying to be outside at sunrise and sunset, which helps the body's natural circadian rhythm, to turning off the shower when applying shampoo or shower gel. I soon learned that being outdoors for sunrise in January at 8am and again in the afternoon at a time when civilised society typically takes tea was a lot easier than a boot camp reveille in mid-June at 4.40am when even dairy farmers are bleary-eyed and semi-dormant. There was, however, one resolution that throughout the year continued to inspire me and if anything became easier to keep. I resolved to touch the soil every day. Now, while that might be unusual were my home an urban high-rise and my occupation a sedentary nine-to-five, I'm a farmer, so surely that's something I do daily already. Surprisingly, the answer is, it's not. And so I committed to touching the soil every day, be it the silty clay of our arable fields growing cereals or oil seeds, or the matted loam beneath our woodlands, or even the tilth from the small triangle of flowerbed by the back door. There are many reasons to touch the soil, Some people report feeling more grounded, excuse the pun. Others are transported from the everyday chaos to the peace and simplicity of the natural world. And still others just like getting dirt under their fingernails. Studies have shown that certain soil microbes mirror the effect on the neurons in our brains that drugs such as Prozac provide, possibly stimulating serotonin production and making us happier and more relaxed. For me, touching the soil can bring happiness bordering on elation. On our farm, we stopped using the plough last century, and nowadays we don't till the soil at all. Our zero-till system means that we sow the seed directly into the ground to take advantages of the many benefits this provides, protecting our earthworm soil architects, natural drainage, and the subterranean fungal labyrinth. This tillage-free farming keeps nutrients in the ground and out of the rivers, shields our topsoil from rain or frost, and ensures that our soil biology is in the Goldilocks zone, not too hot or too cold, neither too wet nor too dry, too hard nor too soft. My year has been shaped by its seasonal transformations, saturated in January, set like iron in the freezing extremes of February, parched when our April showers failed to materialise, and whilst the rains came in late spring, the soil remained bone dry throughout the summer. With our transition to a regenerative method of farming, however, our soil has become more resilient and alive. And as we approached our autumn season of sowing, it was delicious. In fact, not content to just touch the soil, I've taken to getting right down and filling my nose with geosmin, the signature scent of healthy, moist, earthy, fertile soils. This ode may sound like the ramblings of a maniac, but many farmers like me have fallen back in love with our soil 
as we've adopted a more sustainable approach to farming concerned with calories, carbon and conservation, known as the biological revolution. We've moved away from the answer in a can farming of the confusingly named Green Revolution, which started after the Second World War and coincided with the mass production of artificial fertiliser and man-made pesticides. My heroic grandfather was a dig for victory farmer who was paid by policymakers to pull out hedgerows and plough hay meadows after the Second World War in the quest to feed the nation. Before my father was driven to replace many of those same hedgerows through the 90s and noughties. I hope that today's policymakers are awake to the importance of soil health and keep up with those legion farmers who are feeding both nation and nature and protecting that most valuable national asset, soil. Instead, some policymakers are following dead end zeitgeists and popular metropolitan movements that lean on highly processed goods air freighted from distant nations. For them, I have a message. Wake up and smell the petrichor. Tom's daily olfactory ritual has protected his well-being. But according to psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence, many people have struggled with their mental health during the pandemic, especially those who suffer with psychosis. If someone had told me as a medical student that I would experience psychosis, I would never have believed them. Psychosis is probably closest to most people's idea of madness in its oldest and most frightening sense, people who have lost touch with reality. According to recent headlines, cases of psychosis, which represent the most severe end of the spectrum of mental illness, are rising. Psychosis may mean different things to different people, and words used for mental illness have become increasingly stigmatised over the years. In the past, lunatic was probably considered acceptable. But, like many diagnostic terms, psychosis spans a wide range of experiences and is more a constellation of symptoms than one illness. When asked to define it, most psychiatrists will point to hallucinations, such as voice hearing or delusional beliefs. But many people will experience hallucinations at some point during their lifetimes, and odd beliefs can depend on the context. In other words, these experiences can be normal and situational factors may influence whether a person is seen as ill or not. Someone with schizophrenia may, for example, hear people talking about them and conclude that this is caused by conspiracy. Someone who is bereaved or traumatised may hear voices but be able to understand or interpret what is happening to them, however distressing it is. The actual experience of psychosis will depend on the individual and their circumstances and may include fear or relation or just the sense that things are different in a way that is hard to understand. As a psychiatrist with bipolar disorder, when I have been very depressed, my thoughts have often veered towards believing the impossible and for people like me, the pandemic has posed a particular challenge. All the things one would normally do to keep well exercising, eating properly, doing constructive activity and above all being with others have been harder. And psychiatric services, always the poor relation in the NHS, have been diminished. As both psychiatrist and patient, I despair at the thought of phone consultations. Though as a doctor, I make the same recommendations over the phone as in the cons consultation room, as a patient, I know firsthand the value of being seen and listened to face to face. 
Some years ago, I studied admissions to a Scottish asylum over 10 years in the late 19th century and made a curious discovery. While psychotic patients were affected by similar conditions to those we diagnose today, the content of their delusions was different. Their thoughts reflected contemporary concerns like religion and the then new discovery, electricity. Current events can thus shape our experience of mental illness and may even be the cause of it. We don't know whether COVID-19 can cause mental illness directly, but we do know that both biology and psychosocial aspects influence many mental illnesses. Long COVID has been compared by some to ME, a condition which is the subject of polarised conflict. Professionals are divided on whether it has largely biological or psychological causes, with some implying that the psychological is less real. The more I live, the more I believe that all these aspects are inextricably intertwined. What is life if not biology? And what is biology if not more complex than we can know? In many ways, the rising number of psychiatric referrals, particularly for psychosis, is hardly surprising when triggers like persistent fear and stress have been the hallmarks of pandemic life. There has been a pervading helplessness and lack of control. Some have, in misguided efforts to make themselves feel better, used more alcohol and drugs, including cannabis, to which they may be more susceptible than they realise, especially to the stronger varieties like skunk. As the fog lifts from the darkest days of the pandemic, we can begin to assess the damage. I think there is more mental illness and more demand for services now, but it's hard to know exactly how much. There is far more self-awareness regarding mental health nowadays and less tolerance of mental distress. I don't mean to suggest that those in distress should be denied support, but the reality is that not everything I see in my clinic is illness, and this may be contributing to the crushing overload of psychiatric services. Many of my patients have terrible social circumstances and have experienced things that no one should. Some of them do suffer illnesses that can respond to medical interventions, but many don't, and we need to stop treating them, particularly with medication that may compound their difficulties. Should we expand mental health services so that we can respond to all unhappiness and distress, or will this only create a demand that we can never meet? I think we should do what we can and not try to be everything to everyone. People who are unwell must be treated, but... As a society, we must also try to address all the stresses of the pandemic that have brought us to this point. For Gen Zer Serena Smith, the pandemic has highlighted what really matters in life, family, friends and health, leading her to make a drastic decision. I was at my desk in my childhood bedroom when I completed my master's degree last summer. I hit the submit button, sat back in my chair for a moment, then padded downstairs to put the kettle on. All in all, it was anticlimactic. In normal circumstances, I might have spent the next few weeks lounging in the Grantchester sun and drinking lukewarm, tinned G&Ts with my course mates. But this was 2020, and I was nestled in my family home in the Midlands, over 100 miles away from university. With little else to do, I started looking for my first job. I was apprehensive about entering the world of work. Unlike some of my peers, I had not filled every summer holiday with internships, nor had I signed up to a million different clubs in a bid to make myself more employable. But I was quietly confident too. I had achieved two degrees, 
sat on the English Society Committee and written for various student papers. I knew it would be difficult to get a job, but I thought I'd done enough to land one without too much fuss. One month of searching turned into two. In that time, I sent out over 60 applications. I spent the days glued to my laptop, furiously typing out cover letters and obsessively rearranging my CV. With every, unfortunately, your application was unsuccessful, email. Despair set in deeper. I spent evenings sobbing in bed, wiping my tears on the same butterfly print bedsheets I'd had since I was seven. I had gone from total, unbridled independence to texting my dad, asking him to pick me up from the pub at 10pm. Society gears us up to place so much emphasis on our careers, and so without one, I felt abject and worthless. What do you do is one of the first questions you might ask a new face, after all. Answering nothing was essentially a social death. I sent out an application, my last, for a job at a social media marketing agency in late August. There were the usual hoops to jump through, CV, cover letter, a writing sample, an interview over Zoom. A few days later, my inbox pinged. My heart sank when I heard the noise, preempting another rejection, then swelled when I saw the words, we would like to offer you the role. I cried with joy. Fast forward to the present day, and I have just handed in my notice, fulfilling the cliche of quitting my day job to follow my dreams. It feels reckless to be swapping my nine to five for the roller coaster of freelance journalism, where I'll be pitching story ideas and praying for the odd assignment from a benevolent editor. But moonlighting as a freelance journalist on top of 40-hour weeks had left me burnt out. My evenings had taken on a discombobulating shape. After bidding a virtual goodnight to colleagues I'd never met, I would immediately open Google Docs and start working on an article. Some of my peers told me I was smashing it, but those closest to me would underpin their congratulations with concern, asking if I was getting enough rest. It was unsustainable, and eventually it became clear that something needed to change. I couldn't extinguish the part of me that has always wanted to write. Some of my earliest memories involve writing stories on plain A4 paper and stapling the pages together to make a book. When we made a newspaper as a class project in my penultimate year of prep school, I wrote around 20 pages when most of my classmates submitted two. Today, writing feels as integral to my life as breathing. But the prospect of resigning was still terrifying. Financial anxieties aside, my job makes up a considerable chunk of my identity, whether I want it to or not. While on holiday in Greece this summer, one of my friends discussed her promotion while another told me proudly that she had passed her probation period at work. I silently nibbled on a chunk of pita bread to avoid sharing that I was actually planning on leaving my job. I'll be freelancing full-time going forward, without a concrete job title anchoring me down, or the allure of a promotion buoying me up. I feel slightly lost. But I know I've made the right choice. The pandemic has highlighted with painful clarity the things that matter. Family, friends, health... 22-year-old me might not have understood, but I'm hopeful that my future 24-year-old self will. As Serena has told us, for her, writing feels as natural as breathing. For Mike Brearley, former England cricket captain and psychoanalyst, it's sport that can sometimes be sublime. Is there room in sport for the concept of the sublime? Or does the very mention of the idea qualify me for privatise Seward's Corner. Wilfred Bion 
born in 1897, was an influential, creative and enigmatic British psychoanalyst. Born in India to English parents, he was sent to school at Bishop Stortford College at the age of eight, spending every holiday as a guest in the houses of friends. It was more than three years before he saw his mother again. After leaving school, he joined a tank regiment as an officer and fought in the battles of Ypres, Passchendaele, Cambrai and Amiens. Recommended for a Victoria Cross, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for exemplary courage. His later comment was, I thought I might with equal relevance have been recommended for a court-martial. It all depended on the direction which one took when one ran away. His early life was, then, painful and lonely. One thing that gave him solace was sport. In his late-life memoirs, he writes gnomically about the possibility of sublime games and, indeed, of sublime religion. Sublimation, he says, was used by some for what, in fact, was a substitution. Games were substituted for sex. Even religion was thought of by the more advanced as if it were some harmless substitute. No one thought that sublimation could mean the reaching for, yearning for, games that were sublime, a religion that was sublime and not a stopper that could damn back the noxious matter until it stank or bury the growth of the personality till it turned cancerous. End of quote. The young Bion loved games, especially rugger, swimming and water polo. In fact, he was, he says, first class at all games except cricket, at which he was so bad that it presented no problem. This skill meant that games did not have to be buried under a mass of subsidiary irrelevances like winning or keeping ghastly sexual impulses from obtruding. This meant I could come nearer to playing the game for the sake of the game than I ever came to working for the sake of work. So, games could be, or at least aspire to be, sublime, as could religion. What Beyond meant by sublime was played for their own sake, not as a substitute or stopper for something else, sex, aggression or a healthy mind. This view is close to what Dutch historian Jan Hoitzinger held to be the essence of play. In his book, Homo Ludens, Man as Player, play is epitomised by young animals. It's physical, enjoyable for itself and for no ulterior motive. Aggression is moderated, lion cubs nip each other but do no harm. All this applies to young human animals. Like Bion, Hoitzinger saw play as easily contaminated. Professionalism, with the intrusion of financial motives and the need to secure a living, even the need to win, are obstacles to play. Playfulness is serious but not earnest, not pragmatic, not aiming at distant ends. The playing of sport may degenerate into a form of work, dominated by duty, solemnity, stiff upper lip, security. Play proper, both writers maintain, is spontaneous. 
When children or animals are playing in this way, they're not calculating. They simply act. They go for it, as they do when painting or using blocks to build. They're totally involved. There's no distinction at this point between play and work. When Greg Chappell, the fine Australian cricketer and coach, wrote to me that premeditation is the graveyard of batting, I think he was saying something similar. He didn't deny that we have to learn the discipline and technique of batting, nor that we should not or do not have background orientations in setting ourselves against certain bowlers in certain conditions. What he was emphasising, though, was that in the moment of action, we should avoid premeditation. We should be wholly open to the bowler and to this particular ball. Each delivery is a unique event. The top batsman retains this Hoitzinger element of playfulness as spontaneity. Hoitzinger and Bion were, in a sense, Puritan about play. For them, this, for its own sake, is of the essence, and all else is an obstacle to that purity. In this resides the sublimity of game-playing. The nearest approach I know of to an overall attitude of this kind in professional sport is that of Johann Cruyff's aspiration towards total football. Perhaps not coincidentally, Cruyff was, like Hoitzinger, Dutch. In the Cruyff mindset, winning was not the main aim of playing sport. He said, there is no medal better than being acclaimed for your style. Rudolf Nureyev suggested of Cruyff that he should have been a dancer. In 2000, David Winner wrote, the Dutch are devoted to their good football, a phrase with distinct Calvinistic moral overtones, and also have an equally Calvinist urge to proselytise their beauty and goodness to the world. I agree with Chapel's added dimension to Beyond's and Hoitzinger's notion of sublimity. To reach it, we, as batsmen or more broadly, have to allow ourselves to become open to what is coming at us. We have to trust ourselves, our training, our instincts, our bodily reactions, attending anxiously in the interests of technique to parts of our body is liable to interfere with this absolute alertness. If I start thinking of the means to an end, where my left leg should go, how I'm holding the bat, the position of my head, all of which are involved in playing whatever shot I play, I will have distracted myself from the utter simplicity, however difficult that is, of the ball coming down in whatever way it will. I must not try too hard. That is, I must avoid trying in the wrong way. Bion also suggested that the psychoanalyst should try to divest him or herself of memory and desire in order to be fully receptive to whatever the patient is expressing or communicating in the here and now, to avoid being stuck with what is already known. Giving up trying, refraining from a sort of intense internal or external frowning, may feel to the anxious sports person like irresponsible 
looseness. What's more, if we aim at this openness without the requisite discipline in place, a discipline of technique that is founded on a grooving and repetition that takes years of practice, we're likely to make fools of ourselves. The state of relaxed concentration, openness, receptivity and trust are extremely hard to achieve. Even the best players only rarely reach the perfect balance of relaxation and concentration that is sometimes called being in the zone. Putting sublimity, depth, magnificence, daring, beauty at the centre is a form of Puritanism. There's an idealisation of purity, of essence. Currants distinguish currant cakes from other cakes, but you still need flour and butter to make a cake. I see the theory and practice as a heroic restriction. I would say that winning is part of what constitutes sport. The rules of a game define what counts as victory, defeat or draw. It's intrinsic even to cub play. But it's important that sport, like other activities, has these Puritans, that we hear the Puritan voice loud and clear. It's also a voice of romanticism in its shift of sensibility from classical restraint to emotional intensity and the embrace of risk. The grand tour no longer involves hurrying past the Alps. It involves experiencing their changeable extremes. We need to remember that sport may aspire to sublimity, that the crudeness and over-pragmatism epitomised by the professional foul should be discredited. Winning is not all. Thank you so much for tuning into our first episode of the Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in February and tune in to our regular podcast, The Prospect Interview, every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful lives columnists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of my first issue of Prospect from the newsstand now. Or go to the website where you can read the writing from Jeanette Winterson, Richard Dawkins, Dominic Grieve, Ian Rankin and many more. Even take a subscription app and get three issues for just three pounds. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time. Over 200,000 businesses are benefiting from Hiscock Small Business Insurance, tailored to businesses as unique as yours. Uh, need a glass of water? OK, thanks. When you're a small business owner, hiccups happen. Hiscox's award-winning claims team understand your business so that when you need us, we can help you keep going. Hiscox, experts in small business insurance.